Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 242nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Charlotte Galetka. Charlotte is the owner and managing partner of Silver Penny Financial, a hybrid RA in Atlanta, Georgia, where Charlotte personally manages $140 million for 150 client families. What's unique about Charlotte, though, is that she purchased her father's financial advisory firm at a time when the firm's existing bottle was no longer really viable in order to build her own vision for the next stage of the firm's future. In this episode, we talk in depth about the lessons Charlotte learned from the experience of buying an advisory business from her father, understanding that while she would have to make some substantive adjustments, she was still buying, as she puts it, someone's business child that they built from nothing. The process that Charlotte went through to determine a fair price for an advisory business with a number of different business segments, each requiring their own multiple, and how Charlotte deliberately structured the seller finance deal with an accelerated payback period in order to put pressure on herself to grow revenue quickly. We also talk about Charlotte's mindset shift away from viewing financial planning as simply a means of generating business to offering financial planning as a standalone service and a way to serve clients who aren't a good fit for the AUM model. Why Charlotte leverages TAMPs for portfolio management and how she integrates the TAMP fees with her own AUM fee structure. And how Charlotte created a one-page plan deliverable for clients explaining all the value-added services that she's providing beyond just managing the investments. And be certain to listen to the end, where Charlotte shares her own pathway into the industry from being vehemently opposed to working in financial services to realizing that a career as an advisor would offer her the opportunity to receive compensation most directly correlated to how hard she worked. Charlotte's growing appreciation for just how important leadership qualities are when it comes to the success of her business and the important lesson that Charlotte learned about the benefits, both professional and personal, of surrounding yourself with other like-minded advisors. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Charlotte Galetka. Welcome, Charlotte Galetka, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion and, and talking a little bit about succession planning, which you know, it's certainly become a, a dominant topic in our advisor world, just, you know, the age demographics of advisors with the average advisor in their in their 50s, a significant number in their 60s and beyond. There's a lot of succession planning that's happening. But I find that in practice, the, the, the reality of succession planning is always a whole lot messier than the theory, right? The theory is like, I find someone who can take over my clients and the business, and then I kind of write off into the sunset, and then they do, go do their thing. And, and in practice, it never seems to really quite run that smoothly, usually because at the end of the day, the the founder is kind of selling a business in their particular vision of what they created. A successor at the end of the day really doesn't come to buy a founder's business to do it the way the founder did it. Usually they buy the founder's business as a foundation to build whatever their vision of the future is and sort of take and extend that business in whatever direction they think is going to happen. And, and usually that process starts before the succession is already Transitioned, which can create a little little bit of clashing and some tension along the way. And that only gets worse when the founder and the successor are not not just a founder and successor, but all, but also a parent and a child. And, and so I know you have been through a version of this 
transition, you know, having bought the firm from your father and taken it over and, and taken in your own direction over time. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking a little bit about the sort of the, the challenges and the realities of, of succession planning in, in general and succession planning from a parent in particular, and, you know, how, how you ultimately make all of this work. So I think to kick off, why don't you just share with us a bit about your advisory firm as it exists today? Let's kind of get an understanding of what the business looks like now, and then we can talk a little bit about how we got from the start to where we are. All right. So I'm the managing partner and owner of Silver Penny Financial Planning based in Atlanta, Georgia. We have six advisors. We manage close to an aggregate of $500 million, and we run as silos under the same brand. I own the brand. So when you break it down and talk about my individual business, I manage about $240 million. $110 million is employer-sponsored institutional business, and about $130 comprises of our individual clients spanning over about 150 families. Okay. So, so I want to make sure I've kind of got a hand on this. So six advisors overall with 500 million under the umbrella, that's essentially six advisor teams that kind of run to silos. They each do their own thing, but with one common shared brand and platform. You also, you, you both own the, own the firm at the firm level, but are one of the six advisors in the in the silos of advisors with what I'm just presuming mathematically is kind of the, the largest of the silos with 240 million under management. So almost half of the assets of the firm of which 110 is employer-sponsored retirement plans, 130 million is individual families across about 150 families. So just napkin mathing that, you know, average average client household sits just under a million dollars, so eight or nine hundred thousand dollars, at least as an average. Exactly. Now okay. it's an average. So of course you have some more, some less, but over the transition, that's where we are at this point. Okay. And so what is the focus of the firms in terms of what you do for clients at the end of the day? Like how do you explain and position the firm and what you offer? Well, our focus, which we'll talk about as we kind of go through the transition, but is serving individuals. So the employer sponsored is part of the legacy business, which I purchased, but our focus every single day is helping individual families in what I would call, we serve three different types of clients. I call them everyday retirees. I do not love the term mass affluent. I like everyday retiree. We serve women who have become financially independent, usually through death and divorce, and Henry's. We have about 8% Henry's. And we do financial planning for a fee separate from asset management. So I didn't really want my business model to dictate how I serve clients. There's a need for kind of younger people that maybe don't have the assets to get good financial advice. And so when you come to Silver Penny, I'll say, you know, we can work together on a fee financial plan, which is the traditional comprehensive financial planning, you know, that, that most people in our industry move towards. And then we also offer asset management. You can do it separately. You can do it together. A lot of times our retirees will do financial planning for a fee. We'll do the retirement plan. And then they'll end up hiring us to manage their assets as well. But I really, you know, as I've kind of grown up in this business, realized there's a huge difference between hiring an investment advisor and getting good financial advice. So I really wanted to have a way that we could help people to be able to receive solid financial advice, whether they did or did not have the assets to be managed. 
And so what does that look like in, in practice? Like what, what kind of fee structure are you using on the planning side to be able to do this? So on the planning side, we're doing, we traditionally have done $2,500 per plan. What I've realized though, is that that price point is too low because I'm getting a lot of traction right now. You're catching me right in the middle of a fee increase. So we are going to raise fees on those plans. And they're also, you know, as everyone in our industry knows, they're labor intensive, time intensive. It is difficult to really do that to scale mm-hmm. as well as run the retirement business and run the asset management side of the individuals. But I have a passion for this. This is something that I'm working with my paraplanner to make this more efficient. And, you know, so at this point, I'll only take on a certain number a month, but I really get a lot of joy from working on those types of cases. It kind of keeps me going. And so I've really enjoyed that this past year doing those. So I'm curious for a few things. One, just what are you looking at raising fees to? Like, do you know what 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 you're aiming for? Is this like we're going from twenty five hundred to twenty eight hundred, or like we're going from twenty five hundred to five grand? You hit it on the nose. We're going to five thousand dollars a plan. Okay, so that's a big increase. It's a big increase. Yep, I think that I've come to realize that the value that we provide for that, <laughs> we were undercharging. Okay, and so as you look at that transition, I mean, I was struck you. You said I think the words you used was like we're. We're growing really well. We may be getting too much traction with our plans right now, which is you know, le- leading you to to raise fees. So I guess I'm just wondering, like, how how do you think about that? How do you like what's what's too much? What's too much traction and growth that you feel you want to raise fees? I know for a lot of firms, it's like, hey, this is working great. Let's just keep the volume going and do more. Obviously, if you raise the fees, you run at least some risk that slightly fewer people will say yes. So. Like, how do you look at that that trade off and that decision of when to actually put through a fee increase, especially when you're talking about a hundred percent fee increase? I think when no one's, you know, you're you're kind of across different spans, meaning our different market segments. So we have retirees, we have young professionals, which our industry calls Henrys. But when we're getting all those types of people, no one's kind of pushing back. You know, everyone's saying yes. So I feel like the last few kind of prospecting calls, everyone's like, yes, sign. people kept signing contracts, you know? And then I started to panic and think, I don't have the capacity to deliver all these financial plans and do the work at the level at which I want to. So I either hire more people or I raise the fee. And we sat down as a firm. When I say firm, I usually refer to kind of my team within Silver Penny, the people who are working next to me every day. And we decided that that's where we need to be. And they told me, the paraplanner said, oh, good. I, you, this is what you need to do. I was hoping you were going to do this. So then I realized like, okay. Yeah. It's a striking thing to me of just part of the evolution of what we tend to go through with advisory firms. Like there's this early stage of just, I just want anybody to say yes and agree to be my clients and, and, and pay me and generate some revenue, right? We're like, we're in that, that early phase that's really hard. But then at, at, at some point it's like, okay, a good number of people are saying yes. And then eventually you can get to a point of, you know, I actually feel like so many people are saying yes, like maybe I'm just not charging enough. Like there actually is such thing as having too high of a close rate. Like it doesn't feel good to have some people say no, but the truth is if everyone says yes to your fees, you almost certainly could have charged materially more. And maybe a handful of people would have said no, but as you're knowing, if you double your fees and, and only a third of your people start saying no, you actually generate more revenue with right. This work. So the math starts. It's just when you're in it, you cannot see that because all the you know the fear that's kind of outside of if I raise my fee, what's going to happen? And I also started to view financial planning different 
where I was kind of taught that financial planning is what you do to generate business. <laughs> and I now view financial planning as what I do that could be a standalone service. Mm. And so it was a mentality shift for me as well. It's a, a good way to frame it that you know when you use financial planning to generate business, you really you tackle and view it one way, right? Like I need to charge enough to cover my time and maybe make sure clients are really serious about it. So you know, we want some nominal fee there. When you really say like, no, this is my core value. Like I'm I'm worth this. This is the primary thing I'm providing. Then all of a sudden it's like, wait, I should be charging more. Like I provide real value here. I, I shouldn't even need them to do something else to implement on the back end just to get paid for all the value that I did. Like, yes, I wouldn't mind also getting paid if they do some follow yeah. through stuff, but like I should get paid for this. Like this is darn valuable. Right. And you know, another thing too, is that as the pair planner, this is actually teaching her how to be a great advisor. Every time we go through a financial plan, she's learning, you know, the back story of why this certain portfolio is the right fit for the client. And for planning for you in these fees, like, are, is this a one-time fee for a plan and then either they do or do not do something else for ongoing implementation? Or is this like a an ongoing fee, like $2,500 a year for ongoing planning every year? Currently, we're sort of doing it. You have access to me for six months. And then once we're kind of finished through that, you can still call me that for a year. But we are evaluating how we're going to make it more of an ongoing situation. We have not previously, but I'm realizing that that's a missed opportunity. Okay. So so that's a that's a growth direction for you to say, maybe we'll have ongoing planning fees because historically it was... Like retainer, right. Historically, I'm presuming like charge up from planning fee, then if they do AUM business, then the AUM was the ongoing and you can do planning support along with that, but the AUM fee was what was driving it. Right. And we'll have an offset. So if you have X, you know, asset center management, financial planning is included for you. But I, like I said, I didn't, I don't want that to be the only way to work with me. I don't want my business model to dictate that. So if there's a lot of, you know, these young professionals that are coming to me, they need the financial advice the most. And so those individuals, it makes more sense for them to be, you know, getting that annual planning fee as a way of doing business with me rather than me kind of, you know, they don't have the assets they're not ready or they're moving over some, but it makes, it makes more sense maybe to leave it where it is. And so, so from your end, this, this isn't necessarily a like, I don't think AUM is going to work in the future. I want to do retainer fees instead. This is a, I want to get paid for the clients who don't necessarily have assets yet, but they're willing to pay me. So I, I just need a way to charge them. So this is how I'm going to charge them. Yep. I'm not, I'm not completely changing the business. This is still a really small part of our revenue, but this is something that I want to be able to do well. And I get a lot of traction on this. So I also, when you're running a business, you have to think, okay, what I'm doing now might not be exactly what I'm doing next year. And so I need to beta test, you know, is this working? Do people like it? Do I enjoy it? Can we deliver good value? All those types of things. Interesting. And and is that literally kind of how you're mentally thinking about it? Like this is this is a beta test? I mean, when you look at it as percentage of revenue, right now it makes up, gosh, 5% of our revenue <laughs> because we're only doing one or two plan a month. But what's happening is I'm just trying to be open-minded. And of course, maybe that's my background and where I'm coming from is that business models are fluid, right? So right. I can tell you this. And then by the time you air this podcast, we could have had a line in the sand moment and say, okay, 
you know, this or that. So I want to be clear so the clients know what they're getting. Consumers know what they're purchasing. It, it has value in the marketplace, but at the same time, I can pivot if I need to. But this is something that people really needed right now after the pandemic and my center of influence kind of network started coming to me with, Hey, we have the people in this situation and that situation and they need good financial advice. They may or may not need an investment advisor, right? but they need financial advice. And so help me understand then the rest of the, the business and the business model, like what else is happening on the AUM side and the employer plan side. So like, what's the, what's the AUM model and what do you do for, for AUM clients? So we're currently 31% of our business is AUM fee-based accounts. And on the AUM side, we are using primarily TAMPs. So third-party asset managers that are working with us. And we are helping people. Most of our asset center management clients are retired. So we're helping them, you know, go through the traditional asset management. What's the proper allocation? What is your, we do distribution planning. We're helping a lot on, you know, let's set up your monthly check. I kind of got into the retirement side. I will always love the retirement side. I love distribution planning. So we're doing that. A lot of R&D stuff. And so I'm just wondering on the on the structure side for investment management itself, you, you'd said you're you're primarily using TAMPs. So I'm curious what what TAMPs are you using? And just at a at a size of 500 million, you know, that that's certainly size where some firms say we're going to start hiring and building out just our own internal investment team. So I guess I'm wondering like what what TAMPs are you using? And do you see this as like a, a temporary thing because you're going to build this internally or a long-term thing because you like using TAMPs and you're going to hire and staff in other areas of the business? That's a great question. I'm flexible to do either, but currently, you know, I, I evaluate that on an annual basis. So we're using Morningstar managed portfolios a lot. We use Brinker, who was recently purchased by Ryan, and Investnet, which is through my broker dealer. Okay. So they have some TAMPs there that we have access to. So those are our three primary TAMP providers. And how do you like how do you pick which is, like which you're using for a particular for a particular client? So yeah, we've got that pretty dialed in. Morningstar we use a lot. They we started using them for their active passive models, which let's say we started using that a lot in 2017, which were great. They have great kind of ETF, low cost. So if a client's sensitive there, they're more value focused and a lot of their portfolios have a little bit higher international concentration than some of my clients are comfortable with. So Brinker, I will use for people who maybe don't want as high of international exposure. And then Investnet, honestly, the, the people that are there is because their cost basis is such that it's just difficult to move that some of our legacy AUM business, and it just doesn't always make sense to kind of move those people out. It's working for them. It works. So it sounds like in practice, InvestNet was more of a, a TAMP you used historically for business, but in practice, you've shifted primarily to more active passive ETF lower cost models. So either Morningstar managed as a baseline, mm-hmm. Brinker as an alternative for clients who don't want as high of an international exposure in particular. Mm-hmm. And then Morningstar also has stock baskets that I really like. And, you know, in the stock basket situation, it was something that I didn't have the capacity or time to evaluate stock portfolios, but Morningstar had some had some great ones that are there. They have one called the tortoise and one called the hare. And 
my clients really like that. And that's a great kind of sleeve if, if I want to actually hold the stocks. So I've used that with great success, like for fun. My dad has the tortoise portfolio. My husband has the hair. So it's <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of fun. Who's beating who? So for advisors who aren't aren't familiar, like what's what are the stock basket portfolios and how is that different than than the other TAMP models that they're they're offering or that you're using? Yeah. So the Morningstar stock baskets, I think they call them equity baskets, are a collection let's just say 30 different stocks where your client actually holds the stock. So it's great because you can avoid pass-through gains or, you know, if, for instance, like right now we're in a situation where you might not want to put somebody into a mutual fund for risk of, you know, with non-qualified funds for risk of pass-through gains. Well, you can go out and buy a stock basket and your client is immediately owning the different stocks outright and their cost basis starts today. And then, you know, if they want to be kind of more domestically concentrated and then clients actually really like the transparency of, oh, okay, I'm owning this much Apple, this much Alphabet, this much, you know, they can see the actual stocks and the name recognition. And I have a lot of clients that really like that. So how do you handle AUM fee structure? I guess I'm wondering both overall, just like where you set AUM fees and the classic challenge always with TAMPs is like, how do you handle the TAMP fee? Is it like you you charge your fee and the TAMP charges their fee? Do you pay the TAMP fee out of your fee and just adjust your fee as appropriate? So how do you, what does your fee structure look like? And then how do you handle TAMP fees? So this is how we've handled it. I charge 75 basis points. That is my fee. It goes directly to me. I tell all my clients and then the TAMP, whatever investments that we choose have a fee on top of that. So Morningstar, is running about 30 basis points. The client's all in at 1.05. Okay. Now, once again, you're catching me right in the middle of a fee increase. I have also realized that I am undercharging here. So we are currently in the process of reevaluating that fee. If a client has 5 million or more, it's 50 basis points. Okay. So you were, you were historically just 75 bips was just a flat fee all the way up to 5 million and then 5 million was the break point. Yep. Correct. Okay. And so how are you thinking about it going forward? I think that the value that we're providing is higher than the fees that we're charging. So I think what we need to do, and especially, you know, what happens is when I set this in 2017, what we were doing, we're providing, and we have up-leveled in so many areas and that what we're providing to our clients is now a better experience I've changed. Our team has changed. We have higher level professionals working here. So we are considering 1% fee up to 5 million, leave the 5 million where it is. And then whatever the TAMP fee is on top of that, it's on top of that. Now, at some point I'll have to evaluate, do I want to hire in-house or keep using the TAMP? And what's interesting, you know, not to get ahead of your questioning, but when I was at the point of buying the practice and I had to do a lot of things really fast, I needed to scale quickly and I needed some solutions that would help me do that in the most um, effective way possible. And so if you're looking at <laughs> when you when you start a business, you get to make all these decisions and you don't have a capacity issue of clients you have to work with because you're starting and you have more time to deal with all these other issues. But when you buy a business, you know, the business that you were kind of running, you are what I called a, a restart. So I think there's a huge difference between a startup and a restart. I would classify myself as a restart. And at that time, you know, hiring another person 
to manage the portfolios did not make sense. Okay. Nor did I have the time and capacity to do a good job in that role. Insert TAMPS. So now I'm four years down the road. And do you get any, I guess, just pushback or challenges with clients saying like, wait, why are there two fees? Like, why is there's on top of your, like, if we're already paying them, what do you do? Like, do, do those come up in practice or is that more of a, like, we fear that, but no one actually asks that when the time comes? A lot of it is we fear that no one actually asks, but I did, you know, like a good overthinker, <laughs> I did write out an exact list of what we do, you know, what's included in our fee. So I have a one pager that say, this is our fee. It is transparent. This is what we do for our fee. So I have a very detailed way to explain to clients, this is what you're paying me for. And just curious, like how, how do you explain that when, when you've got this split fee and you're right, all the pluses and minuses of showing it so transparently that like we can get crystal clear on here's what we do and here's what, what the, what the TAMP does, but then it can really make people zero in of like, okay, I see what the TAMP's doing. Cause like they're trading the stuff. Like, what do you do again, Charlotte? around here for that fee. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think early on I got questions, but it's funny that I'm getting less and less questions, which tells me I'm doing the right thing because people are asking less and less and say, listen, our job is to know your financial situation inside and out and all the complexities that are surrounding retirement, tax laws, changing investment environment, help you determine if this is still appropriate for you, help you determine how much money should come out, what your withdrawal rate is, how it's going to happen, you know, where's the money going, how, how much taxes are you withholding? We kind of have a drill down of all of that. And I also say, listen, you know, we're partnering together. I'm serving in a coach capacity. I'm your financial coach. I'm going to help you make all these decisions. And my job is to do due diligence on all the investment partners out there. And I say, you know, it's a checks and balance. It's not just, it's not just me. I like to utilize the research of the people that are the best in the industry. You can actually flip your questioning and say, okay, why do people not question more the one financial advisor sitting in their office, you know, deciding when it's time to rebalance? And do they know when is the right time to make shifts in the portfolio? Or are you leaning on a team of professionals that that's, you know, all they do? Morningstar, their, re, you know, their job is research. And so in that sense, people are like, okay, yeah, that makes sense, you know? Interesting. And and so the AUM model for you is sounds like is a big core of where growth is happening because you've got this third pillar, which is the retirement plan business, which I think you outright kind of at the beginning framed as this is the legacy <laughs> business. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so talk to us more about the retirement plan business. Okay. So the retirement plan business, I do have some 401ks, some 403bs. They are primarily in what we consider paid up annuity contracts, which before everybody gasped on how terrible annuities are. These are primarily group annuities from products that were developed in the 80s, which have extremely high fixed rates. Uh, yes. Back when interest rates were you know, double digits, it was like, Hey, just just for the heck of it, like let's write in something silly like a you know three, four, five percent minimum interest yep. rate. Like anybody exactly. would ever care about that yep. when we're paying 12. And now it sounds like, oh, I got an annuity with a three, three to five percent minimum interest rate. <laughs> it's a pretty sweet fixed income investment. 
it gets better too. And you open up the prospectus on those things. They, some of these do not charge on the fixed account. So not only do you have, you know, that percentage of your portfolio, it is a zero net fee to the client. So to all the naysayers that are telling me, you know, how terrible annuities are, I said, okay, let's line up your client's fees next to these. And you can't, it's very difficult to beat them. Yeah. Yeah. When you're like, I've got a, I've got a zero fee fixed income investment, right? <laughs> paying three, four or 5% that you just can't buy today. Right. Now, is that appropriate for everyone? No. And that's part of the process that's happened over the past four years. Anybody that annuity was not appropriate for, they're no longer in an annuity. But there are so many people where, you know what, (laughs) if I'm acting as a fiduciary, I can't move them because they're in an investment that's appropriate for them at a very low fee. Right. That's a huge asset size, but a lower percentage of revenue. So you can do the math on that. (laughs) It's it's about 100 million over there, but it's only about 30 ish percentage of our revenue. Okay. And so it sounds like then you're not necessarily actively doing annuity business into retirement plans. You're not even soliciting retirement plans necessarily. Correct. You have this block of business. It was part of what you acquired. You're continuing to service it, which works fine because it provides ongoing trail revenue to service it, but it will, I guess, just naturally winnow itself over time as they pass away, retire, transition out, have whatever life circumstances changes happen to them. And, and that, that percentage of revenue just gets smaller for you every year. As it stands today, that is accurate. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Makes sense to me. And so, so now help us understand a little bit more of the journey of how you got to a business where you're building primarily in planning fees and retirement portfolio management, but you have this big old block of retirement plan business. So how did we get here? So I know just eventually that, you know, led into the business that led into a family practice that led into a, a succession plan. So let's just start there. Like, you know, did you, did you always want to be a financial advisor growing up? How did you land in the industry? Yeah. I never wanted to be capital and never <laughs> wanted to be a financial advisor. And I interned for a summer, even in high school, that never got to be all caps, never wanted to be a financial advisor. Then I went to college and I graduated in 2003, right after the dot-com bust. So there was all of zero jobs available. Mm -hmm. And I did well in college. I graduated summa cum laude. So it wasn't like I didn't do well enough, but there, it was just really tough job market. So my first job out of college was as a claims adjuster in a really large property casualty insurance company. Okay. That was not fun. The person across from me in the cubicle was named Milton. And if you've ever seen office space, then you can just imagine, you know, walking into this huge, just corridor full of cubicles and the person across from me is named Milton. I'm like, oh, great. What what have I gotten myself into? Mm -hmm. So I stayed there for 15 months. And then I was also a spin instructor at the time, way before Peloton and spinning was a cool thing to do. And someone in my class said, hey, you know what? you would be great at working in the financial services industry. Why don't you come and like, we got a role open. It would be great. And you could work the retirement plans at Duke. I was in North Carolina. And I said, oh, wow, that sounds great. So I went and interviewed. And of course they pitched the whole, you know, you can help service the retirement plans. And it's like a natural, you know, it's a market. You don't have to depend on your natural market. You can, you know, work this employer-sponsored case. And and it it was more of a plan representative, I guess. 
So I tell my dad, oh, look, I'm going to, you know, get this job. And he said, oh, man, you, you can't work for them. That's, that's one of my largest competitors. <laughs> he said, you can't do that. And this was back when all the, you know, retirement plans had, were full service advisor and it was a competitive market. And he said, why don't, let me just ask yeah, my broker dealer. They've got, they might have a similar role in your area. And lo and behold, they did. He, no one ever thought to look at this before. So, so just how did we get so quickly from like, I never want to be a financial advisor growing up, interned in school and never want to be an advisor. And then like 15 months after the claims adjuster job, like here we go into financial services. Yeah. So I think the, the short story is I realized I didn't want to work for a large corporation. So that tasted my mouth of the whole clocking in, clocking out, getting paid the same, no matter how hard you work. That was not me. That did not fit mm-hmm. my personality. And then I started reflecting a little bit about my childhood and my dad loved his job. He was helping people. He loved that. He always seemed to be available when it was time to have, you know, he was at all the high school plays and the dance recitals and all the things that we did growing up. He made a good income. And I thought, that's that's not so bad. Maybe I'll look at a version of that. I don't want it to look just like that, but maybe it's not as bad as I thought. You know, you get a little bit of real world experience on you and you realize that maybe what you were looking at isn't exactly as bad compared to everything else that was out there. It was Lincoln. They had a new retirement division where they hired a bunch of young people. And so when they interviewed me, they brought in three other, it was very smart on their part. They brought in three other, you know, young professionals that had just started that were in their twenties and they seemed like really cool, fun people to work with. And at the time, you know, I was working in this like very stodgy, like insurance company, very antiquated, like just a not fun work environment. And so looking across, I'm like, okay, these are these fun people. And we got to travel. At the time, like, oh yeah, you might be traveling. Well, they they sold large retirement plans to hospitals. And so the traveling was like I would be in the middle of nowhere, you know, Mississippi in a large hospital for 12 hours a day. But at the time when they interviewed me, traveling with other fun people in their 20s seemed like a really great idea. So I took that job. And I was an enroller in a 401k company. Okay. So where did it go from there? So the 401k, let's just say that was 2004. So five, six and a half, 2007. It was great. I loved it. I took the series six, enrolled people in their 401ks all day. And then they said, hey, we want you to work the North Carolina state pension opt-out plan. So the universities in the North Carolina system, the faculty level or higher could choose to go in the pension, or they could do a pension opt-out plan, which was a 401a plan. So they needed people to go to the universities and essentially there was four providers. So they could choose if they decided to go in ORP, they could choose their provider. So I got put on that or I would go to ECU, East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, and I would sign people up. And that, and that became a little bit deeper work with clients. So it wasn't just kind of a show up and roll people and leave. It was a relationship where I would kind of, you know, it was a little bit more in-depth planning. I'd have to run the numbers on, does it make sense for you to go in the pension or are you only here for a short stint? Then you might want to, you know, if your accounts do well over time, it might make sense 
this is a mutual fund-based platform. You can move it to a 401k down the road if, you're, if academia is not your long-term career. And because this was a choice them both, I guess they really had two choices. Like, do they take the pension plan or do they do, they do the ORP? And if they do the ORP, are they, are they doing it with, with you, with Lincoln or one of the other providers on the platform? So like, this is, a, this is more directly a, a sales oriented role, business development oriented role than, yes. than the enrollments where like plans been sold, you're, you're trying to get them on board, which is still a sales process at its core, but like it's a different kind of sale when you're just trying to get to them to enroll in the plan versus you actually have to sell them on the, on, on the plan and you as the provider. Yes. And mind you, I was 24 at this time. Okay. And everybody thought, ECU, because North Carolina, you've got the, you know, who's the jewel of North Carolina? You've got UNC, NC State. These are the big campuses. So nobody wanted to go to ECU. Oh, it's out, you know, in a rural part of the state. Well, they have a med school there. So I very quickly befriended the HR director of the med school. I think she felt pity on me because here I was, this young <laughs> this young thing in the South that didn't know, you know, what was going on. And the first July one is when all the new doctors start. And even in this very unassuming rural town was this medical development, the person who developed the gamma knife, which is a cardiac procedure type of, you know, big technology at the time was there. So there's people from all over the world coming to be fellows under him. And they had the option for ORP. So the very first July, July 1, they all come in HR and then, you know, I had to have a speech and they, it was myself and three, the other company shows up with three more distinguished gentlemen who have been doing this a very long time. That very first time was, was really scary and, and difficult and challenging. And I just about fell flat on my face. But the next year I was determined that when it was July 1 came around, I, my speech was going to be good. I was going to be ready. I was going to know what I was talking about. I still wanted to dress like them. So I still wore a Brooks Brother gray suit. And they all, you know, so everyone's there in their suits. And I, I started to have success. And I started to, you know, learn the chops about how the ORP worked and the investments inside of it and why that would be more appropriate for a young person that was only going to be there for four years. And I really like kind of the individual relationship side. And so I thought, you know, maybe I do want to like be more than an enroller. Maybe I want to work with individual clients and get to know their stories. And I think I had some intellectual curiosity, you know, and I think anyone starting out to be a 401k enroller is a great way to start. You get a taste for investments, you get a taste for people's risk tolerance, people like you work with the masses too. So you get to see some behavioral finance. It's a really good lab, learning lab for behavioral finance. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, you, you know, you might grow bored of that. So I grew bored of that. And I've been two and a half years into it. And I said, man, I really want to work with, I want to be an advisor. So I lived in North Carolina. My dad lived in Georgia. And at the time, he has a lot of these large cases still in hospitals and schools. And one of his partners was retiring. So he said, why don't you can come down here and be an associate? And I convinced, I had gotten married. I convinced my husband to leave. He had finally reached like the top of his career and gotten a coveted position at Duke. And I said, hey, you, wanna, you want to go to Emory? And he, he was willing. He did it. So we moved to Atlanta in 2007, just in time for the world to fall apart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So what was the role that you were going to be taking in your, in your father's firm when you initially went down there? Honestly, it was a glorified enroller because they still had the plans. They needed someone to go in the hospital two days a week and sign people up in the hospital. So I did that. And they said, okay, well, you can kind of work. If you can get some individual clients, you can do that. You can help us a little bit. So I, I would say I was part enroller, part paraplanner. And every now and then I would get a crack at getting my own client. Okay. You do this, you make the, tra- you make the transition. So I guess what, what happened next, both in the, there's now like what happened next in the career and then what happened next in your career, given the world went bonkers a year later because the financial crisis broke out. I mean, I literally show up, I'm like, you know, going to be an advisor, get all my, you know, I'm an, I'm an advisor now. Everybody needs, you know, and I show up in the South and this is 2007. Yeah. So not only there, but I'm a young blonde female still in my twenties at this point. And then when the financial crisis happened, I remember distinctly, everybody does. It's like that moment. If you worked in finance, you remember where you are and what you were doing. And it was a series of days. And I remember the fear, like never having been through this. I remember my father just immediately hit the phones. I remember that. The other partner in there hit the phones. And then the fear of like people talking, it kind of felt like that eye before the storm though. And I remember some kind of quiet moments where everyone's like watching the financial markets or you're waking up and like, look what happened in Asia and, you know, collapse. And I'm still super young and green. And so I'm trying to figure out which end is up. I had also just bought a very expensive home because that's what everybody did in 2007. Right. Looking back, you know, I honestly, I I just want to give that girl a hug and tell her it's going to be okay. (laughs) And then when you work in employer-sponsored plans, people don't know they've lost money until the next quarter statements come out and then the next quarter statements. So I remember the next year being a constant barrage of phone calls. I literally just had to sit at the desk and the phone would ring and they would just, you know, push transfer phone calls to me. And when you work these huge employer cases, these are people that you've never talked to. They're calling crying. They've lost money. So it was just client after client after client. Mm upset, upset, upset. And these were not people that I had had long-term relationships with at that point. These are people I barely knew. Some of them had had relationships with my father or the other financial advisor that was there before me or the the other partner. And so, you know, you're sort of trying to pick up whatever relationship equity you could, but the panic, the concern, the drama. And I just remember it went on for a long time. It was not a quick, you know, the people that are younger in the industry, we've been through some quick blips but when you go through a prolonged down like that, it wears on you. Right. You know, a year into it, you're just, it beats you down too, you know, and you, you sort of like, what am I doing? Why am I choosing this industry? And I made the mistake at that point. I just didn't really, I felt like an island. I, I did not meet other financial advisors that were around my age. I didn't get involved. I've heard you speak of it and a lot of the people that were in it during that time got quickly plugged in into next gen and those types of things. I didn't have any of that. So I was very alone in that sense. And there wasn't a lot of people my age in the industry. So that felt really lonely for a long time to be kind of in that position. I just slogged it out. I think, you know, there was enough business to kind of keep me going, but I I had a lot of doubts at that time. Like, gosh, I just don't know if this is something I want to do for the long term. You know, this is something I'll do for now. I'm desperately needed here. People need to, 
you know, talk to someone who knows more about the financial markets than they do. But this is not a mental state that I want to be in for like the rest of my career, you know, dealing with people that are devastated and upset and losing their homes and that kind of stuff. So, so I guess it's like, what, what kept you in that you didn't go somewhere else and find something else? Or was it just like, the economy is so bad, I don't know if I can get another job anyway, so I may as well just stick it out here. You know, you go back in your thought process that time. I had a baby in 2010. And when I came time to determine kind of what my paternity leave was going to look like, the broker dealer told me, you can do what you want, but if you are out two years, you have to retake the seven. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't really know what I want to do, but I don't want to retake that test. So, or the 65 or everything, your licenses go bad. Right. But you know what? I will just continue to, you know, I was really digging retirement distribution at that time. And there was all these people that had been in the retirement plans and now needed someone to help them get them out of the, down the mountain, you know, the accumulation to the decumulation. And so I would just work kind of on cases with my dad in a paraplanner role, helping people to do that. And I still, we still had some active employer cases. So I would do that as well. Okay. But I didn't have as much exuberance. Let's just put it that way. That was not a more exuberance. I was a young mother. I was not connected with other financial advisors. And I think honestly, the mentality then was just, you know, kind of get through the day, get through the week, weeks add up to another year, kind of get through the new baby haze, you know, and yep. I'll, re- I'll reevaluate it. So what came next in this path? Because this is not exactly the most upbeat phase for, <laughs> for staying with it as long-term financial advisor. You're obviously still still here. So. I am still here, Michael. Yeah, you're waiting. Why? Some shifted at some point. I know that does sound kind of downer. It wasn't all bad. It wasn't all bad. Obviously, there was some, there was moments and people and clients that kept me going. There were, you know, you'd get those ray of sunshine moments or someone you really helped that kind of, you know, feed you with some energy. So what happened? next is that the employer business landscape was changing rapidly. And I had a front row seat to something that was changing where that was no longer a marketplace that was going to be serviced by the full advisor servicing model. Consultants came in and they would reevaluate all these plans, reprice them, determine if they needed to, and the fees, you know, fee compression in the employer-sponsored plan happened. And so there was less fees, which is great for the consumer, but there was also less compensation for a full-time advisor to be, you know, on site. We were on site a lot. When I look back at the access that these people had to great financial advice, it's amazing all the different kind of financial planning light that was happening inside hospital cafeterias and inside schools. And so as this was shifting, I started to see the writing on the wall, but it's not a quick process. And so in the firm, we had to go through RFPs and consultants. And so what I was starting to see was that this was not going to be a long-term situation. And I had a, a, a really big sense of loyalty and obligation to all these people that needed financial advice, also to my father and what they did. And, and he's a helper, of course. So his you know, true belief was that people needed financial advice that were in the lowest payroll positions, you know, that everybody should have access to. It's very altruistic the way that it happened. It just 
wasn't going to continue in that way. So there were definitely days where I felt like we were a dinosaur model. I mean, I kid you not when I felt like I was the last bronchiosaurus kind of like looking around and being like, wait a minute, there's nobody else here. You know, that this is not going to be for very long. And so 2015 was sort of the final straw. And the cases at this point had become like mutual fund based platforms. So what happens is when you lose a case, you lose it overnight. Meaning I think there was a hospital case. It was $60 million that the next day, it, all 60 million is gone, goes to the new provider. Mm. So if you were an advisor that had built your business doing institutional business and you had, you know, maybe a half a dozen really large institutions, when one of them leaves, a huge source of your revenue is gone. So 2015 was a huge RFP year and we lost kind of the last big case, went to a, you know, an online type of provider and we weren't doing as a firm what we needed to do quick enough to pivot. And I started to, I guess I started to, you know, get out of the baby fog. I'd had a second child by then and I started to get more confident in my abilities as a financial planner and as my ability to help people communicate some of the complexities of financial, you know, personal finance. I was into financial planning. I Lincoln had this really cool software at the time that I loved and I worked a lot on. And so in 2000, the year after we lost the last case in 2016, I just sort of had a line in the sand moment. And I, I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to take this ship and turn course or I'm out. And I remember telling my husband, who's a physician, and he had recently switched to pharma. And I said, okay, are you going to do the pharmaceutical thing where, you ha- where we have to move all the time? Like, is that something that you want to do? Do you want to be an executive? And he said, I don't know. I really like being on a medical team. I think I want to just do this. And I said, okay, because we, and we had lots of discussions. If I do this, I'm going to do it. And I came to my father in 2016 and I said, you know what? I am ready to, I need to buy the business and take it over and we need to change some things or I need to leave and do something else. I'm not sure if it was exact, the conversation was exactly that stark to him, but in my mind, it had reached the point. I'm a go-getter by nature. And I think, you know, after the financial crisis, those few years of just kind of like making it through and kind of staying in it, keeping my licenses active, but maybe not growing as much, that, that wasn't me. That was not aligned with who I am and my core beliefs and just the way that I'm, you know, my makeup. And I was ready at that time to do something. Like I kind of, I felt like I had all my energy had been kind of diverted to family. And at this point, my kids were getting a little bit older. And so I was ready. And by older, I'm not talking that much older, like two. My youngest was two at this point. But I had, you know what? I had had a couple, I had had like a year of sleeping, which is amazing when you go through several years of not sleeping. So I had a, a, you know, a full year of sleep. And I was like, wow, I can do things now. So I told him this year has to happen or else I need to do something different. And I said, it's okay. It's your business, whatever you would like to do. But if it's going to involve me, it has to happen by the end of this year, 2016. And he said, great, I'm ready. I didn't know you were ready. I was waiting on you. I said, okay. And he's, he was still early 60s. So he still, you know, had some juice left. But I think that losing the individual cases at which 
you know, he had such an emotional attachment to that was difficult. That was difficult for the kind of change to happen and for him to lose those relationships. And he had put a lot of heart and soul into those over the past 20 years. That was March of 2016. And then the rest of that year was dedicated to working out the terms. Okay. Of you alluded to in the beginning, though, when somebody sells their business, their advisory business, they are selling their business child. And I am the actual child that bought this person's business child. Right. <laughs> Which was a fascinating experience. So tell us more about that. Like, how does that, how does that start coming together? Because, you know, figuring out terms and structure and the rest is hard enough for any founder successor before you layer all the family dynamics on top of it. Yeah, it was hard. I think one is that we had had a triggering event. So a lot of times I am seeing that people can't let go, but it became very clear that something had to happen. We had to change, you know, what had gotten him there wasn't going to get anybody anywhere. (laughs) At that point, it was over. Certain parts of that were no longer. And it sounds like the losing his biggest firm client in 2015, the year before, was kind of the ultimate moment of realization to just to accept that dynamic. Like, no, no, really, it's different. Right, right. I think saying it out loud and knowing it, but it actually, because I mean, when I first showed up in 2007, it was phrased like, okay, we have all these cases. We might not forever. They're definitely going more direct service, fidelity kind of, you know, go online and do that. They're like, but we don't know how long we have. Right. And so when you kind of live in that mentality, eh, could be, you know, a very long time. And I've also learned through this process that inertia is one of the strongest forces in nature. Yep. Never underestimate inertia. So 2016, I think he was sort of like, whoa, like Charlotte, she's back. I mean, because he knew me as, you know, super high achiever, like go-getter. And then, you know, having children and 2009, all those types of things, you know, just kind of knocked me around a little. So he's like, all right, great. Like she's back. She's ready to go. March is when it started. And I think being a family member does, does a few different things. Yes, it adds complexities, but also allows there to be, you don't have to kind of qualify what you're going to say. You can just say what you're going to say. <laughs> okay. Yep. So there was a lot of closed door meetings that, and another thing is when we became buyer and seller, we were no longer operating as like loving father, caring daughter. He wanted a good price for his business child. And I wanted as the buyer, you know, the best price for the opportunity that I was, because I understood that the the opportunity does not equal success. And that with this particular opportunity, I knew the work that had to be done. At one point, I had considered having other partners come in to share the financial burden. We decided early on that was going to be too complicated to work that out. So then it became just he and I you know, there was CPAs and lawyers. I think it made them very uncomfortable because we would get in heated discussions around them in there, you know, full kind of open, well, what about this? And what about that? And because his business, a lot of it was commission-based and then you have these other things, it was really hard to break down. So there was a lot of different pieces that were difficult to value, that had to be valued differently. But we, we worked through it. You know, there was some heat. I think the CPAs probably got the brunt of it because he took it as long-term capital gains, as he should. I had to take phantom income, pass-through income. 
you know, which of course, when, when I figured that out and did all the math and realized how painful that was going to be for me, I felt differently about the price. And, and he sold it to me for above fair market value in his mind, you know, but I knew I was buying a great opportunity. So we, we worked it out to what I would say is the best. And we both had to give and take a little, but we both were committed to getting it done. And I had sort of set the deadline of by the end of the year, like this has to happen by the end of the year or I am walking away. And I also had the, you know, my husband's a physician, so this wasn't a need in terms, we, we would have been okay and I'm a good saver and all those things. So, and I had a deep desire to honor and build upon his legacy. He could have just kind of let it ride out and be done with it. And he said that he's like, eh, if you don't want to buy it, I can just kind of let this, let these trails kind of ride off into the sunset. But I didn't want that for him. And there are so many clients that I knew needed really good financial advice. So I would say the deep desire for legacy, loyalty, and also commitment to getting it done. So then we, and the broker dealer helped. They came in and, and had some people that kind of came in and provided some counsel, some coaching. They brought David Growl in from succession planning. Yep. And so he did a session with us, but it was a back and forth. So it, it, I would consider ours under good circumstances, it still took a good nine months to work out the pricing. And so how did you, I mean, just how did you arrive at pricing? It's hard. I mean, we spreadsheeted every business segment. Each different business segment's got different multiples. Okay. Which is hard. And we had to guess a little on some of the retirement plans because we knew that the compensation, which was not under our control, was going to change. Right. That did not change in my favor. Let's just put it that way. But I knew I knew that was a risk going into it. And I also think that there is a huge mentality at play when you're buying a business. A, you have to realize you're buying someone's business child. You have to consider that. They have built this out of nothing, you know? B you are not going to be able to control every single thing. So there has to be some willingness to jump into something and you have to make it go as the buyer. You know, in any kind of purchase situation, it's not going to be worth anything unless you make it worth something. People just think that, oh, you just buy this practice and then you show up the next day and you have all this flow coming to you. And I don't think it works that way in in a majority of the situations. So we, we arrived at the terms. We decided to do a seller financing. I decided to do a super fast. It was a three and a half year payback, which if you do the math on that, it's painful. And I did that intentionally. I did a bunch of bit. The broker dealer put me through this great kind of program as I bought the business that helped give me in some coaching kind of a five-year plan. Okay, this is what you're doing. This is what you, and it was very clear to me day one that we had to really start to think differently, hit the ground running because I had to turn the ship a little bit. The business that was there was not going to be the business, you know, of the future. And so I had to implement the changes and I wanted to put my back against the wall. It it was a little aggressive. I I don't think I would recommend doing that (laughs) unless you, you know, and plus I didn't, I wanted to, I wanted to give myself the underdog mentality. You know, I knew I was, in order to make it successful, I wanted to give myself kind of a three-year timeline. I wanted to make it aggressive and I wanted to be operating, you know, where I was. And I essentially didn't pay myself the first year. Because there's not a lot of dollars left if you're doing a reasonable valuation buyout and trying to pay it back in under four years. Correct. 
and, you know, we had been smart, my husband and I, you know, we had constructed a reasonable financial plan, but it's still painful, especially because I was doing pretty well. So it was still hard to go from, and it, you know, it's hard to work that hard and not have the instant gratification of, you know, bringing home a lot of money. But I treated myself like in my mind, I felt like I was a startup because that's how that mentality is. And I really, you know, I had this plan and I owed more money than I'd ever owed anybody. You know, this was more than my mortgage. This was more than, and it was to my dad. Like I wasn't, you know. Well, yeah, like to having this not work out and defaulting on the loan is not even just personal financial consequences now. Like you're, you're blowing up all family holidays at that point. Yeah. And it's funny because my grandmother, I don't know, she's like 90 and she called me and she's like, Charlotte, you mean he just didn't give it to you? Thought he was just going to give you that business. And I'm like, no, he didn't. I'm paying for it. She was funny. She was a little nervous. No, I'm going to work for it just like anybody else. You know, this is- One. So, I mean, like dad actually needs his retirement checks so he can right, retire right. too. There's a, there's a math part to this. <laughs> yes, there is a math part. But yeah, so then 2017, I remember we had the final legal documents. Like it was over Christmas. I think it was December 28th. I had to go sign them. And then January 1st, 2017 was like off to the races. It was crazy. So help me understand again, just why the, why the intentionally fast payback? Like why that structure? Well, due to what happened in 2015, the loss of revenue to the business in order for it to be successful, it needed to grow quickly. And so I wanted to put pressure on myself in order for that to happen. Now, did I know in the back of my mind that I probably could have restructured the payment and he would have been okay with it? Yes, but I really wanted to give myself an aggressive payback because what what's a greater motivator than, you know, putting her. So the idea, the idea was like a faster payback will force you yeah. to grow the business faster and change it more rapidly. And that was the, that was the pressure you intentionally wanted to put on yourself. Correct. I think I had a, had a lot of motivational sayings like posted everywhere in my life at the time, but I think I said, pressure is a privilege. So here's the pressure. I have a bunch of them. And I knew, I knew myself and I knew like, you know, give me the challenge. Things had to change. I had to change. I had to grow into the leader that I needed to be. I had to get clients to change. I mean, just everything sort of had to restructure. And so I changed my mentality from the inside out. Like I was kind of going through this metamorphosis of a, I really made this like a big thing. This was this monumental thing in my life. I remember my husband at uh, New Year's Eve, he bought a really nice bottle of champagne, told all of our friends like, yay, Charlotte's going to be the, you know, she's going to take over the business. And, you know, that was all like, there was like a quick second of happiness. And then it was just like the next year was insanity. I'm just envisioning the like, wait, you spent how much on that? Don't you realize how much debt we're in right now? Yeah, I... I literally, I mean, and he, he had no idea either because I had sort of been more of a supportive role, you know, at home. Like he, he had no idea what we were about to go through. So what came next is just, you, you dive in like, okay, it's now January 1st of 2017. You've acquired this firm. You're pretty clear. You don't want its future to look like the past. And, and you've like lit a fire in yourself that you have to make the changes happen relatively quickly, given the 
the debt payments and the commitments. So what, like, what happened? Like, what did you do as you came in and, and, and had to start changing the direction of the ship? Get excited, Michael. Here comes the good part. First thing I did was hire somebody new, right? Cause I had no money, hardly any, you know, so I took the little revenue that I would have had and hired somebody. I knew that the staffing situation as it existed was going to need to change. But because we're a micro business, you can't just come in and, you know. So I went ahead and hired the future, step one. And this was interesting situation. This person who I hired her in December, actually before, you know, things started. And she was a professional organizer who ran an individual organization business. She had helped me. Someone gave me a gift certificate because my closet is woefully disorganized. So I hired Claire. And I said, hey, you know, I want you to work with me. I've got this great business, but it's going to change. And what it is today isn't exactly what it's going to be like, but I have this great vision and this is what I want to do. And I want to show all these clients and we have to meet with all these people. And you're highly organized. And I really like your dedication. And she at the time had been a personal assistant for 10 executives. And she had come to me and said, I just want to work for one person and make their business great rather than being spread out between 10 people. I said, great, you're hired. And I said, come with me. I'm going on this journey. I can't pay you a lot right now, but just trust me and work with me. So she and I went and it's out, you know, the office was out in the suburbs. And I said, you got a year to learn everything that, you know, everyone here does so that you know. And I said, and by the way, there's a hundred, like we went down the top a hundred clients had to know me, a business coach said they needed to think of you as their lead advisor within a year. So you have to meet those hundred. I took the employer-sponsored book and I identified 200 people and I said, we have to meet with all these people. And so she and I said, here's the deal. We just have to schedule as many meetings as possible. We need to, you know, I'll analyze all the investments. You schedule all the meetings. I'll go through the process and we need to let these people know that we have a great plan for their investments. We can offer financial planning. You know, we, we've got an eye on the future and the name of the game is as many people as possible, volume at this point in terms of the meetings, you know, game of numbers. So I called it, I think I called it Project 200. And so she and I made up all these like goals. And I think everyone else in the office thought we were crazy. They thought we were crazy because we just, you know, we we were in this like, you know, we'd rip up papers and put them on the wall. And, you know, she and I would give each other motivational speeches and and then I had to tell the office staff, I think my dad and I marched in and he's like, you know, he, he literally gave the speech. He's like, okay, I had gotten fat and happy and that just isn't going to work anymore. So now Charlotte's in charge, which they should have seen this coming. I don't, I mean, we had all these closed door meetings. So this, this staff didn't know that this was coming. Ish. They did. I don't think we ever explicitly, like, I think that they thought it would be gradual and that literally that January, that first January, he's like, Hey, Charlotte's in charge of everything, every leasing copier in her name. Like I'm no longer like, you know, he was still there. He was going to work there, but he was no longer in charge of anything. Mm. It was like ripping off a bandaid. Like all of a sudden I had to hand him their contracts and I, sh- <laughs> and I'm like, Oh yeah, I have a new employee. The best change though. So there's two support staff. And then I, I had, hired Claire and she, you know, comes in and I said, well, Claire, you know, Claire's not going to be doing your job. She's going to be, we have to meet with all these people. And they also knew that we lost the case. I mean, it was very clear that like, Hey, we lost our largest client. Right. So Claire's going to, you know, Claire and Charlotte are on this project of those meetings. I said, you know, we, we have to adjust a few things. So I adjusted everybody's contract. And then I took, we had these little pink pieces of paper that said, while you were out, 
and you wrote the messages. And then there was a plastic office organizer with slots in it where it had everybody's name in the office. And when somebody called, they wrote it on the pink piece of paper and put it in the slot. It was so efficient, inefficient. It drove me bonkers. So I I said, you know what? We're no longer going to be writing the while you were out messages. And I threw away the plastic thing. And I said, we're just going to email when somebody calls. Like, just email me if I'm not in the office. If I'm there, transfer it to me. Mind blown. You can do this with email. This was 2017. This just tells you, I use a dinosaur analogy. Like, I'm only giving you the tip of the iceberg of the dinosaur analogy. Oh, they were not happy. That was bad news. Bad news. That was my first move, you know, at the team meeting was to throw away the plastic while you were out system. So we started meeting with people like crazy. We figured out everything from how to sign up with the Department of Labor, you know, how to get your name on a copier, how to all that stuff that I have being an entrepreneur that I hadn't accounted for. Oh yeah. And there was a bunch of clients that would call. Like we still had to service people that wanted to change their beneficiary or, you know, that kind of stuff. And I was trying to get them to shift. Like I, you know, I'm no longer doing those tasks, like the pair planning tasks. Like I have to meet with these clients. It was fast and furious. We, I remember I would drive through Starbucks at 7 a.m. and get like a, one of those protein pack things, put it in the refrigerator and eat it on the way home at 7 p.m because I had so much, and I had done none of that before. Payroll, I had to get payroll in my name. I had to, yeah, trial by fire, right? So all those running the business things while I was having, you know, I was hitting the phones all day, having meetings. So that was going well though. I mean, we were just just hitting the targets. And I think too, I had, I had set a target of, okay, we need to have $20 million in managed money by, we need it in 18 months, I think was what I had said was sort of the, like the massive target that I said. No, less than that. Let's say a year, somewhere between a year or something. I said, we need to move $20 million. And it needs to come from the outside or, you know, we need to, we need to find this. Told Claire, said, you know, this is great. And, and she had to drive. That was the big concession is like coming to this office that was not close to her. I said, you need to drive. But here's the deal. Within five years, we're going to move a little bit closer to the city and it won't be so far out. And like, you know, and you have a year to learn everyone else's job because I'm going to have to do some shifting and restructuring. 10 months into this scenario of us just grinding, the office building sold. And so we could no longer lease. This was what, November? We had to be out by the end of the year. So all of a sudden, we're going to have no physical location. Oh, good Lord. Like they, the building got sold and I guess the the buyer either said they're busting the lease or just they had an out on the lease. Well, side story. My father owned that building and I told him I would buy the business, not the building. When that particular office complex kind of turned around, I said, as your financial planner, I think that you should sell this now. As your office tenant, hopefully it will take eight months. This sort of like time on the market took 10 days. Oh, okay. Yeah. Here's another challenge. Like as his daughter, that was good because I did not want to be holding this office building that was like 40 miles away from my home. You know, it had been purchased in 2008. So getting that out of that current situation was, you know, a critical issue to his individual financial plan. Okay. Except a a little disruptive for it to whack into your world quite that quickly. Right. Plus the research was showing eight months. So I thought, okay, it takes six months to find a, you know, I kind of had it like, planned out. Let me get through Christmas, all this kind of stuff. So the other partner, there was another partner. So it was myself and another partner. The other partner wanted to keep the same arrangement that my dad had, where we shared staff, we shared expenses, but we basically ran as silos. 
And so when the office building sold, he was looking, supposed to be looking for a new location. And instead he found an REA that he wanted to move to. <laughs> so he came in and he said, I need you to sit down. I need to tell you something. And he's like, I know this is going to be hard, but I'm going to move with this RA. I'm 50 something. If I'm going to make this move, I have to do it now, you know, with all the changes with you and your dad, like essentially he was just like, I just, I don't need the whole office sharing expenses anymore. I'm just going to go and do this other thing. So within, let's just say a 10 day period, I learned that we were going to be office homeless partner left me (laughs) and the brand was no longer valid because the other partner's name was on the door. So I had to stomach all of that in November of 2017. Ouch. Yeah. Yeah. It was not cool. I welcome to business ownership. Like good news since you're the owner now, these are all your problems. Yeah. And it's funny. I was trying to explain it to a friend and I was like, listen, it's just like some people go to MBA school, but I just got my MBA in like hard knocks, you know, owning mm-hmm. a business is like getting a small business, like getting an MBA in hard knocks. Oh gosh. It was right at Christmas time. I had to move into a temporary office location the Saturday before Christmas. It was awful. And as a mother of young children, I am the magic maker of the Christmas. I'm the CEO of the Christmas magic. And so that was also like really stressful. My youngest was three, maybe four. So we were still in the thick of like small kids, Mm -hmm. but man, we ripped that bandaid off. We moved into a temporary office I had to, at that point, the staffing situation, I no longer had someone to share expenses. And I said, you know, I'm moving the office. And one of the staff members told me that wasn't going to work for her. And I said, well, you know, and I think this is, you know, a natural parting, like there'll no longer be a job at the end of this year. And then I had to rebrand, but I decided to hold off on that. So yeah, we moved the Saturday before Christmas. It was my dad, myself and Claire and when we moved, no, that office was like a museum of office machinery because nobody had cleaned out the office machinery in 30 years. You know, it was much easier to move those old printers than to actually like evaluate if you're ever going to use them again and throw them away. Right. It was really like a museum of, you know, like I sh- my kids were like, what are these things? You know, like what, what are you-? I'm like, these are printers, like, you know, <laughs> version one. Yeah. <laughs> so I say, so like, so 2018 is just suddenly this, like you bought the firm in 2017, but suddenly 2018 is this like fresh, new, clean start on, on the business because the firm's changing, the brand's changing, location's changing, staffing is changing. Like, so I feel like it's, it's gotten really real, but now the change momentum is suddenly really picking up if only because it has to. Yeah, the change delta hit. And it's funny because Claire and I had talked about like a five-year plan and like the five-year plan became an 11-month plan, like an unplanned 11-month plan. Right. Yeah, so January 1, 2018, we were in this office building. I remember it was a really gray January and we were just like, I kind of looked at her, I'm like, it's me and you. (laughs) Like, we got this, you know? And the clients, see, the clients didn't really know this was all happening. I tried to manage the change information to the clients because they had just, had new advisor last year. And so I didn't want to, I wanted to gradually roll out the new elements of change, like the new location and the new name and the new, I didn't want to run on the firm. So she and I literally just logged out the, you know, client servicing kind of what we had, but then we we picked it back up again because I had those goals. And so I, I subleased like a satellite office back out in the old location. 
And I would drive there twice a week and meet as many clients as would meet me there. And I really believed at that time, like, okay, the interaction that I have with clients has got to be so, like, I have to be so confident, so on point. And my confidence grew because I was getting a lot of yeses Mm -hmm. and a lot of new dollars and a lot of, it was a momentum, a shift in momentum, what was happening. And people were, that's when I started to kind of catch wind of Stephanie Bogan and her mindset work. And I thought, man, this girl is onto something. And so I would just like listen to her, like motivational tracks and, you know, some of the articles that she wrote, just kind of walk in confident, ready to go business as usual. And then we found a location. We moved again. I we made our second hire. We hired a branding firm. I realized at that point, I did not want anybody's name on the door because I had learned that that person may not stay. So whatever the name was going to be, it was not going to be a last name. So we hired a branding firm, which is a great experience. They did a, I don't know what you call it in branding, where they go out and survey clients. Okay. You know, where they interviewed 10 of my clients. And I'll tell you what, that makes you feel great. Because I told them, I said, I'm going to hire you every year to tell me what I do. Because they essentially... (laughs) you know, said, oh, clients like this and clients like that. And I kind of realized through that process that my unique ability and my gift in financial planning is that I can simplify. I think our industry as a whole really makes things overcomplicated. And that's sort of like, you know, the keys to like, oh, it's so complicated. So you need to hire an advisor. It's like, you can't understand this. And I really just want to pull back the curtain like the Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. And be like, listen, our industry has all these big words. They are sometimes, they exclude people. They make you feel just really the opposite of confident. Like you don't belong. And I, I feel like so many people in this country walk out of their financial advisors. They just don't want to feel stupid to ask the questions. And I've worked really hard over my career to make sure that when a client walks out of their my door, their head's up a little higher. They feel a little bit more knowledgeable or confident about their financial situation. And particularly women, I've seen this a lot. And so I've worked really hard to craft my conversations with them. Like, hey, this, there, you know, there are no stupid questions. This isn't a place where, you know, like I have a round table intentionally. So we sit, no one, there's no head of the table. We're sitting together. I'm on the same side of the table. And so the branding came through in that I was able to hone in, understand that is one of our value propositions. And I tell clients that, listen, if, you know, my goal is to simplify your financial life. If you are looking for some really fancy, smancy, complex things, I'm probably not the advisor for you. And out of curiosity, who was the branding firm that you hired? It's called Proper ATL. Proper ATL, because they're there in the Atlanta area. Mm -hmm. They're really cool. And they, I don't, think they had worked with, and I got, okay, I got lucky because I got them when they had just broken away from a larger branding firm. And so I probably got them on their initial pricing situation. (laughs) Good timing. Good timing. I think now they have big client rosters, Chick-fil-A and like they, they have some pretty big name stuff, but God, they were so talented. And another advisor in the office that I was in at the time said, can I sit in in all the meetings? And so he ended up, Jason, my partner is how he became affiliated with Silver Penny as well. Is because he, all that, you know, we did financial planning the same. It resonated with him. And so he wanted to get in on the Silver Penny brand. So as you look at all of this, what, what surprised you the most about 
building an advisory business now that you're in the in the hot seat as the as the owner? You know how much courage is involved. I think that there's a lot of courage involved in just what we do every day, guiding people's financial lives. People are looking for to us for the like, what do we do? Is it okay to buy this or not buy this? Um, I think courage to invest in a business at very difficult times. I think courage to keep going when things seem really bleak. Mm. And I think leadership qualities are something that I didn't realize was going to be really paramount to success. Mm. And so like, what do you do, I guess, with that or about that? Like, how is that shaping what you're doing? Yeah. I've got three guiding principles of leadership. I think that a leader needs to set the vision, define reality, and say thank you. I would say that again. I like those. What were the three? Set the vision. Okay. Define reality. And say thank you. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Probably the 10-day period where the partner broke up with me. We were office homeless and we had no brand. Although 2009... You know, I would say the way that it kind of sapped my energy for the business, that was a low point of 2009, 2010. But the owning the business low point so far has been that little time period where it felt like the bottom was falling out. <laughs> and I mean, did you think about giving up, changing, going back? Like, okay, maybe I don't want this after all. Maybe I should find someone to sell to and just move on to something else. I think... You know, everyone says the journey, like the hard stuff journey is sort of motivating in itself. There was a part of me that's like, this is not how it ends. You know, like this, this is not, I'm going to get it together. This is just faster than I wanted to. I, I quickly turned it around. So my mentality, I had to have a mentality shift there. You know, my story that I was telling myself was like, wow, this is very painful, but this is exactly what you wanted to happen. It just happened earlier. So now you just have to keep, you know, making it happen every single day. You have to fight. Another thing is like, you have to fight for energy. I think sometimes there's things that will unexpectedly get you down. Like, I don't know how many people the pandemic sideswiped them, right? It took something from their energy, their motivation, their, you know, kind of sense of like, go get it, but fight for it. Get, fight for your energy to do great things. Cause there's a lot of things out there that people need to do. So what do you do to fight for? I mean, just like, how do you, <laughs> how do you do that? So <laughs> a work in progress. I have a strong faith. So that helps. I, I truly believe that wherever you see, you know, incredible things happening, there's collaboration. So I have a team, you know, Claire is my chief of staff. She is a core integrator into everything. It's like your tip of your iceberg. Like whatever, if you see that one person doing something, there's usually great people around them. And so I really try to get people to speak into me that are also doing motivating great things. You know, I've shifted a lot. I think of, I try not to hang out with people that are negative or not encouraging people that want to see me succeed. And just as you look back at this, I'm thinking particularly over the the past five years since you were, making the decision that you were going to do the the purchase from your father like what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you in 2016 as you were thinking about working on the deal 
that there are a lot of great people in this industry that are pulling for me to succeed. It took me a minute to find those people. I, I had taken the more isolationist, like island kind of career path, but now I've gotten to know a lot of great people through, you know, Riskalyze has introduced me to really great people at their conferences and through coaching programs that I've done and just like, don't go at it alone. I was going to say, how do you, how do you find the people in practice? You know, try different things. I, I know a lot of people have found luck through like FBA and those type of organizations. So for me, it's been like coaching groups. I think it's also been conferences where you see people that are like-minded and you can tell on LinkedIn and other kind of social media places where financial advisors that are maybe have the messages that resonate with you. Or even this podcast. I mean, how many times that people listen and be like, man, I feel the same way about XYZ as that person. So like find people who seem to be like-minded, politely cyberstalk them on social media and then figure out a way to hang out with them. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> it's that great thing about digital world. We can You can figure this out about people. Go to that <laughs> conference that you don't know. And so like the Risk Lies one in 2017, I was like, I'm going to go to one conference where I don't know anybody. And I went and it was fantastic. And there was this whole room full of like energetic advisors that were doing all these different things and using all this different technology. And I was like, wow, there are people like me all over the country that are doing it slightly different, but that I can be friends with and I can pick up the phone. And I, I did get lucky. I actually had one person, not Lincoln Booker dealer who, who no longer works there, but I called him my friend tour. He was like my friend and my mentor. And at the low point, I called him and... He, he actually told me, he said, listen to Matthew Jarvis's podcast yeah. on kids is number seven. And he's like, just go do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what advice would you give younger, newer advisors looking to come in and get started with their careers today? There's lots of different ways to do it too. I think we can easily hear something and assume this is the only way to success. And that's absolutely not the case. I would also say like, never underestimate how much like it takes work takes hustle and grind and like going out there every day and, you know, and also invest in yourself and your mindset. As we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and the theme that always comes up is just the word success means different things to different people. And so, you know, you're now on this great growth path for a successful business. You're, you're not even five years out from the, the transition and $500 million and growing quickly. So yeah, the, the, the business is succeeding, but how do you define success for yourself at this point? Well, I have three different like success kind of measure buckets. I want to have impact in the world. I want independence and I want income. So I would say my impact is definite. I get to impact the people who work on the silver penny team every day and also my clients independence, you know, I define independence as I want to do what I love with people I enjoy on my own terms. I would say I'm getting there. I'm not hundred percent there where I'd like to be, but I'm working towards that. And then income, you know, I'm constantly taking step steps forward and step back, <laughs> depending on how much I want to invest in the business. And I would say I am hitting my, I'm close to hitting my goal targets, but I think the other two filters are pretty big for me. I'm just saying, I'm also just struck that you 
you have them very well defined, like your three I's, impact, independence, income. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I took that from somebody. It works. I, I love the lens. I love that as uh, filters for what we're doing and how we're focusing our, our time and energy. Well, thank you so much, Charlotte, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.